Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books, where each month I hope to share with you my love of books, old and new. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, your expert, in inverted commas, guide to Beatsfield <laughs> readers about what's just been published and what might whet their appetite. Uh, and in particular, to talk about some really cracking reads for Christmas. Cracking reads, get it. Very good, Tim. This month, I'm talking to best-selling author Sophie Kinsella. She has sold over 45 million copies of her books in more than 60 countries, and she has been translated into over 40 languages. And I love finding out how it all began. And Tim, talking about how it all began, this is a special week for One Tree Books, isn't it? Well, it is. It's our our 27th uh, year in, in operation. Brilliant. Uh, thank you. Anyway, let's let's kick off with what we're currently reading. Um, so I've been reading a variety of books as as ever. I'm mainly reading a book for which we're going to talk about next month, uh, which is Giles Brandreth's um, biography. I think it's a quality call it autobiography, um, Odd Boy Out, um, which actually is is a is a cracking read. I would say. Um, I've also been reading The Gardener by Sally Vickers. Oh, I love um, Sally Vickers. Sally with an E. Don't forget Sally. Um, mm. But more on that about later. I'm going to talk about that as a, as a, as a possible Christmas present. I really it's a, it's a it's a gentle read, and I think uh, I think she's got a lot of a lot of skill at what she does actually mm. writing. Um, I've also just been reading The Great Gatsby for uh, for the umpteenth time because I've we got were to read it. we were doing it for uh, the book club in the shop here. It is it is a great book, but I actually think on the whatever how many times I've read it now that actually maybe it's not that great. But anyway, oh, that, that's, contentious. It is quite contentious, but uh, but uh, maybe it is it is too much of its time. But anyway, that's another another point. Um, I'm also reading a book which I probably will talk about in February because it's not out, not due out till then. Justin Webb, the uh, the, the broadcaster, chap on the Today programme, yep. has, has done a a sort of biography of his early life called The Gift of a Radio, and I'll talk more about that later on because that's another really good read. And another book which I'm going to talk about next year. Part of my job really is to b- read books in advance, yes. so I'm, I'm always trying to to be ahead of the game. And, and publishers kindly send me proof copies, early copies of books, so that I can get to read them. And you know what your customers like? Yeah, I mean, I've, and the, the, one of the other book I just read is the uh, the winner of the uh, the Prix Goncourt, uh, the the big French uh, book prize, like their kind of booker. Um, in English, of course, I'm not a, I'm not a, 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 a can't, I wouldn't have a chance in in French. The Anomalie. Uh, That's very good, too. Hervé Letelier. And oh. it's, it is actually, it's, uh, it's a really interesting read. But again, more on that next year. I'm very quickly done because I've been reading romance um, because of the course. Um, so I've been reading The Hidden Beach and Christmas in the Snow by Karen Swan, which were recommended to me. Karen Swan actually lives in Sussex and she sets each book in a different 
place which she visits. So if you want escapism, which I've probably missed it, they would be brilliant in lockdown. So where is where is the Hidden Beach? The Hidden Beach is in the Swedish archipelago where I always wanted to sail. So oh, Not in Sussex then? Not in Sussex. Oh, I was thinking of going there. Ed- okay, no, right, okay. No, no. <laughs> well, you still okay. could. Well, it's a, quite, you know, quite a long way. to go to Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. And on, on Christmas... Yeah, exactly. And Christmas in the Snow is um, a skiing resort. So I haven't... Also not in Sussex. Also not in... None of them... I think it's important to say she herself, the real author, lives in Sussex, but all her books are set somewhere different. And she classically... This seems to be, I now discover, a romance thing. You do a kind of summer book, Christmas book. Uh, Well, I mean, going back to the the skiing, I mean... uh, when there was snow on the on the downs, uh, there were people skiing up there. So, oh yes, you know, it's not it's not uh, beyond the beyond the bounds. No, no, I'm not um, suggesting for a second good. that you were wrong to good. think it I might think be set in Sussex. Skiing on on Butser, but that's not. That's yeah, well, story. East Mean has got that yeah. lovely slope for sledging and so on. Been there many many a time, um, but hugely right. So that's enough of that. Really, obviously, the two Sophie Kinsella books, Party Crasher, which is her latest one, and I wanted to go back and read an early. So I quickly read The Undomestic Goddess by her. And I think the notable thing about Sophie Kinsella is that so many people say she's the only author that makes me laugh out loud. And I think that's a skill. But the two books I really, really want to mention is Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, um, winner of the Women's Prize, which we sort of mentioned last time. Have you caught up with it yet? I haven't yet, no. What did you you think? Treat is in store. I, I shall say no more this time. I'll save it for next. I think it is one of the best books I have possibly ever read. Goodness. For itself, the the way it's written and so on. Um, And totally, unlike The Great Gatsby, I think it is a book of its time, its moment. I think it will transcend it because it's a classic, but it's also totally apropos. And the other one, which strangely reminds me what or at least doesn't remind me but I think they inhabit the same kind of universe of reading is Treacle Walker by Alan Garner who is as you know one of my all-time heroes I adore him and I think um, this might be it sounds strange his breakthrough novel at the age of 87 despite the fact he is lauded by the likes of Philip Pullman and so on and my backlisted book is going to be the Owl Service, um, which was written in 1967. Fantastic. So there's, there's, there's uh, still time for us all yet to put that brilliant breakthrough novel out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even for me. Petersfield's Shine Radio. So Madeleine Wickham, which is Sophie Kinsella's uh, real name, uh, was born in London. She studied music at New College, Oxford, but after a year switched to politics, philosophy and economics. Her first novel published under her real name when she was 24 and working as a financial journalist, The Tennis Party became a top 10 bestseller. I'm doing a romance course, which regular listeners will know, um, run by Jenny Colgan. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I know. I just wanted to do it. What was your journey to publication? Because you were only 24. I know, I know. Well, it's, um, it's kind of strange looking back. I've recently caught up with my publishers after not seeing them for quite a while over the pandemic and we were sort of looking back at, at the whole beginning of, of you know I can't believe I've been in this for so many years really I suppose my sort of my big discovery was understanding that I wanted to write fiction because I was a journalist at the time and I was dealing with quite boring subject matter I mean I was on 
I was on a magazine called Pensions World for the pensions professional, and then I was on Resident Abroad for the expat investor. I mean, I can see your excitement <laughs> at both these titles. And so I think for me, the, the biggest turning point was being on my kind of commuting train and reading fiction. And at the time, there was a, um, a lot of Joanna Trollope, Mary Wesley, oh, yeah. those sorts of books out in the marketplace. And so I was sort of going into Smith's and picking them up. And, um, and I don't know if they spoke to me. Um, they seemed to be about everyday contemporary life. And I started to think, oh, wait, maybe I could do this. But I think I had to write, read the, the right kind of fiction to believe that I could do it because... You can re- read a book that you really admire, but you don't feel the cord of recognition that tells you that you could do this too. I could read, I don't know, a kind of gory thriller, and I would really admire it, but I wouldn't think, that's my bag, this is my voice, this is my thing. Whereas these books, I suddenly thought, wait, no, I think I could tell this kind of story. So I think that was my first step. And I think I was really lucky that in those days... There wasn't the internet, there wasn't social media, there wasn't any of these things. So even though I had a job, when I went home, my time was my own. Also, I was very junior, so nobody really minded what I got up to. So having kind of got the idea, well, first of all, I thought I'm going to write a book. Then I used to sit on the train thinking, what's my book going to be about? What, 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 what? And I had lots of full starts, lots of chapter one in the drawer, lots of just misguided sort of... But I then... I don't know, I hit on this idea and it was all about a group of people playing tennis. I know tennis, it felt like a good comfort zone. It wasn't too ambitious in scope. It was like a weekend party, a limited cast. I think that kind of helped me to make this one fly. And was that your first that you finished? Yes, that was my first I finished. And um, I mean, I just sort of threw myself into it really and got to the end and um, <laughs> wrote down a few names of agents out of the writers and artists yearbook. I mean, this is pre-internet, as you do. As you do. Um, it's impossible to describe to people who grew up with the internet what it was like. People, we just didn't know. You didn't know what to do. Um, there was just such slim pickings. And it was hard to find who agented which Absolutely. For years, yes. Even. Yes. So, um, so that was the sort of the industry bible. So I, I just took all my information from that, printed out the book, and put it into jiffy bags because, again, that's <laughs> yes. what you did. <laughs> we were talking about this the other day at this dinner, and my agent said, um, "You know, sometimes you just get a, an energy about a book. Even you know, the envelope just seems to have a certain energy." She was speaking as an agent, and I said, "Do you realise that a lot of people around this table don't know what you mean by an envelope?" And I was oh, kind gosh. of joking, but there's a, you know, nowadays it's just click and send, and in those days it was so visceral. It was like I'm packaging up my heart and soul in this manuscript. You know, I'm giving out. This, the this, letterbox. I can yeah. picture the letterbox. I used to yeah. post them in. And did you find Day. your voice with that debut? Or did it change? Or? Well, interesting. You see, I did have a voice. And it was a, it was a particular type of book. It was third person, quite a big cast of characters, lots of different points of view. And I wrote like that because that's what seemed right at the time. And I wrote several more books like that. And then when I took this plunge and wrote the first Chopaholic book, I changed voice. I, it's funny, now I look back on it, I think that when I wrote my first novel, I was, you know, 24, working as a financial journalist, 
And I really didn't want to write the autobiographical first novel. Mm. I just didn't want to. I wanted to write something that was like not me, that was like, I'm a writer. Look, I don't just write about myself. So I kind of went the other way. And I wrote this book about 30, 40 somethings with all their dilemmas about life. And, you know, it was quite far removed in some ways. And then I hit, I suppose, uh, you know, I was just a bit older and I had a bit more confidence. And I think I was able to relax and write the kind of first person confessional, quite true book that was just a different part of me. And that I was like your eighth book. Wasn't yeah. it something like that? Yeah. And it was like I found comedy. I found a comedy voice, which I don't think I would have had the courage to do before because, you know, it takes a bit of guts to say, well, you know, I think this is funny, you know, anybody else? So I think it took me a while to have the courage to sort of be silly and, and mm. you know, talk about things like shopping and visa bills and, and all these things which, you know, seem trivial, but I thought, well, I think I can turn them into a story. Um, and that was like a first novel for me it really was it was like I found a different voice I feel like I'm starting again and that's why you know I took is that why name. you became exactly so and what change did that make I mean was it all was it outside in or what do you think well it's interesting I mean it all came from the voice it all came from the new voice and I will be honest it also came that the, the whole pen name thing came from a desire to do this sort of on the side without the pressure of saying, I'm changing direction and this is what I'm doing and everybody... I kind of wanted just to, to fly a kite. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll send it in. I sent it into my publishers anonymously. They didn't know it was me. That meant that there was a get-out clause. They could reject it. It would be fine. No one's embarrassed. And I just really wanted them to judge the work and either like it or not like it, but not have that awful thing of, oh, gosh, our author wants to change direction you know, what do we all think? And I, I, I couldn't quite bear that. Mm. I wanted them to just be able to say, no, not for us, and then that would be fine. Mm. And as it happened, it kind of went the other way. So what I thought was sort of my side project turned into the main deal and kind of this huge thing, which I hadn't really predicted. Do you think you'd ever be allowed to change direction again? And would you change your name again in order to do so? Oh, I would do that in a heartbeat because I think, I mean, you know, as an author, we're just so very lucky that we can get to do this. We get to hide behind a name, although I think it was easier then than it is now and people mm. seem more able to track you down. Um, yes, I think it's just a brilliant way to write without any expectation, without any pressure and to just try stuff out and experiment. Um, so, you know, the day that I write my gritty thriller, it will be under a new name. Not Robert Galbraith. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I keep trying to write gritty thrillers. It's absolutely hopeless. Is it difficult to keep coming up with fresh storylines within a genre that already has every possible romance covered? Well, interesting, yes. I mean, I suppose every romantic kind of shenanigan has been covered, but you know what? The world changes. And I think when I look back at my world, the settings, the, you know... Just the developments in technology alone mean that there's just a different way to tell a story. We communicate differently as humans. We date differently. Everything moves on. Um, mores change. So although some essential beats of romance are just there, meet, fall out, love, you know, so many of the peripheral details are different that there's always a fresh way to look at 
love. And I think we are actually engaging. I mean, when I wrote not my last book, but the one before called Love Your Life, so much of that was inspired by online dating and the way that people filter out qualities before they've even met their sort of potential partner, um, which is kind of the opposite of the way it used to be, which is that you met somebody in a bar, you were attracted to them, you knew nothing about them. Nowadays, we go the other way around. We're like, well, I've found a vegetarian person. <laughs> um, Vegan, please. And let's see how he, how he, you know, looks. We've chatted online. Now I'll meet him in the flesh. It's kind of back to front. Now that's, that's a product of our culture of the moment. So that feels like a fresh story, even though some of love is just sort of timeless. And I think it's speeded up. The, the rate of change, hasn't it? Yes, well. it has, it has. But it interests me because I'm so new to reading this genre as well. It fascinates me how much of the contemporary setting is also involved. It's really important to ground it somewhere because I suppose the act of falling in love is a fairly magical thing, so you need to make the rest of life contemporary, quotidian, Yeah, well, I think it depends what you're going for I think you can tell romances in any way I I like the contemporary world because I like readers to identify with my heroine and the more that you can ground it in a kind of reality that we all recognize I think possibly I I like to take my heroines on quite extreme journeys I quite like pushing the comedy to the nth degree brilliant and so I think you need to start somewhere quite grounded and real if you're going to do that extreme thing do you now, as Sophie Kinsella, get to choose your cover and your titles? Do you love, because it seems so much a kind of a format, because now I'm reading Jenny Colgan voraciously, uh, and now I'll be reading you, and it, they're so similar, the covers. And the elephant in the room is the number of my friends who go, oh my God, I wouldn't dream of reading those. Well, they should. Wow. Um, yes, I mean, in terms of cover, um, I really hand that over to my publishers. Um, I mean, I'm involved and I applaud the designs. Um, I, I don't have any input because I, I think I'm probably the last person on earth. To, <laughs> I'm not visually talented. But if you hated something, you'd Oh, yes. I mean, if I hated something, I would say so. And, uh, I mean, I get a lot of covers sent to me from different foreign publishers and everything sort of to be approved. And um, often I'll look at a cover for a different market and I'll think, oh, I'm not sure I quite respond to that, but maybe, you know, that's what will work in that country. So I'm very respectful of, of the people whose job it is to know what to put on a cover. Having said that, I absolutely love my UK covers. I love them. They are uplifting. They're so bright. I mean, they, they rejacketed all the books a while ago and we've had a sort of theme ever since. And honestly, they give me joy and they inspire me. And I think as an author, there's such a gift in seeing your work kind of represented in a different way, in a visual way. So, so it already makes you smile. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely, it absolutely does, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I would just say Russian dolls because don't they appear on one of the covers? Is yes. Is that the US? Yeah, no, the Italian cover... Has Russian? I know. So, um, well, so I. I should it doesn't explain. make you smile, though. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so the book features um, a set of Russian dolls quite strongly, and you know, there are so many different ways to get a story visually. But I'm quite thrilled that one of them actually does feature the Russian dolls because they were such a, a, a huge sort of part of the narrative. 
completely and, and a metaphor as well. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to give any spoilers, but read that book. Oh, <laughs> Sophie, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank and you very much. All the questions. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't be there at that interview, but I listened to it and, it and it was really great. I was interested in a couple of things Madeline said about the romantic novel and how it changes because of the peripheral details that happen throughout history that so that their novel doesn't stay stand still I mean you might I mean you you might think you know that's boy meets girl girl meets boy it's all it's all set and easy um but with things like online dating and social media of course it, it it's it's not not like that and one of the things I'm just reading in in Giles Brandreth's book about uh when he was he was uh, a student and he wasn't able to you know to send messages and texts and and social media stuff and he used to send telegrams to his girlfriend <laughs> on the other side of Oxford, uh, which seems pretty, pretty, pretty to express his great love um, for, <laughs> to his girlfriend, who later became his wife. He must um, have money, too. Well, I, I think that's one way of spending your money, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway. That's so funny. It's like a postal order coming to Billy Bunter. Yes. <laughs> and you said some of your friends uh, wouldn't dream of reading romantic fiction, mm. which I think is a mistake because well-written romantic fiction can be great and a varied reading diet is so much richer. Um, it's not just important for me because I have to read lots of different books, but I think it's actually really useful um, to read across a range and not get stuck into one particular genre because, um, like anything, like any diet, it, it just gets a bit bit much after a while. So yeah. I think it's good to, good to chop and change. When I first read uh, Madeline Wickham, as she was then, her first book um, when, it, when it came out called The Tennis Party, which was published back in 1995, which is just the year after after we opened here, um, which was much more about sort of social observation, less was less humour in it. But the publisher had fantastic expectations, Transwell. They were really keen on it and persuaded uh, lots of booksellers to read it before it was published and then to, to, to rave about it, uh, even though she was only a, she was only a, a youngster. A stripling Spring of chicken. 24. Yeah. I, I do think it's fascinating that she wrote that in the third person. Yes. Um, for the romantic course, we've been told we have to write it in the third person. It does get a bit breathless to be first person present tense, which so yeah. many of the ones I've been reading are. Yes. Um, and, and you can see how a lot of the poor ones are very formulaic. But you're right, a great romantic novel, uh, like the Maggie O'Farrell or something that I've talked to listeners about before, I think it would stand up there with, with a lot of others. Yeah, yeah. Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. So now we're into what's coming up and what to look out for, Tim. Over to you. Well, I'm, I thought this, this month I'd make a little tweak on that and talk about some books that might be really worth giving this Christmas to, oh, to people. Um, first of all, in fiction, which is obviously my area of particular interest, um, the literary end, I think the, the beautiful world, Where Are You?, the Sally Rooney would be, would be good. Um, if you want to really understand the, the millennial mindset, um, you know, there's people born in the 90s, basically. It's a kind of, it's a love story, but it's perhaps more accurately a relationship story in that it's not purely, you know, it's it's clever. In paperback, the one I would suggest, uh, on the again, on the literary end, is The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel, um, which is a kind of literary mystery story and is very satisfying and uh, and, and excellently done. In the in the in the sort of less literary but still but still very well written and interesting and well done books, uh, a book I mentioned earlier, The Gardener by Sally Vickers, 
It's about a woman recovering from a broken heart and, and a, a complicated family, renovating a house and garden and the washed borders um, and uncovering secrets as she goes. Brilliant. Um, the other one is The Lincoln Highway by A. Mortals. Now, um, I haven't actually read this, but I really enjoyed A Gentleman in Moscow, which was a lot of people's favourite lockdown book because it, it, it's, it's about a chap who is stuck literally in a hotel for 30 years. <laughs> So, oh, God. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's kind of it is a kind of quite um, claustrophobic in some ways. Um, this one's actually about a road trip all the way across the US in the 50s. So it's a bit little bit less claustrophobic. Um, there's a new book by Rose Tremaine called Lily, which is just out. And I'm very keen to read. It's about a 19th century orphan girl. That's been hyped a lot. Hasn't yeah, it? I mean, Rose Tremaine, I think, is, always, is nearly always excellent. In fact, I didn't, I didn't actually get on with the last one, but uh, she's nearly always excellent. So I think that, that would be worth mm. reading. Moving on to non-fiction, for those people who, who enjoyed Jeremy Clarkson's farming series on television, there is a, he's written a book about it called Diddly Squat, um, which is, that's what he reckons he, he earns on his farm, uh, A Year on the Farm. Love him or hate him, I mean, he is a, he's, a, he's a, one of the most Marmite characters I think of any, <laughs> anybody on, on television. He is a brilliant communicator, uh, whether on screen or on the page, and I think this, you know, this will be very popular with the, those people who, who like him. Um, also with a country theme, but perhaps for the more arty, uh, A Year Unfolding by Angela Harding. It's a beautifully illustrated guide to nature through the seasons with loads of her brilliant prints throughout the book. She's a wonderful printmaker uh, and that's, it's a really gorgeous book. You so that, have her advent calendar here, We have her advent calendars beautiful. and we have her tea towels. And oh, dear. She does loads of books, jackets, and she's, she's, she's all over the place at the moment. Um, she's incredibly popular. Um, and I, I, I'm not surprising because she really catches um, her hairs in particular are, are lovely. Not her, oh, not yes, her hair. I thought you no, meant to have her, her hairs. I'm glad you said in the plural. H-U-R-E-S. I love a good um, hair. Yeah. Um, moving on to biography, uh, there's those are people. A lot of people like theatrical biographies of, mm. of, of the great. The yes. great actors. Um, Brian Cox has done a uh, book which has had some really interesting reviews. Putting the rabbit in the hat, it's called. Um, you may know him from the TV series that everybody's talking about called Succession, Succession. at the moment. Yeah. Another biography, big biography, and I'm big, by big I mean big in every sense of the word, is the Paul McCartney book oh, called yes. The Lyrics, which is vast. Um, it sort of takes up half a table, comes in its own slipcase and costs a, a king's ransom. But uh, it, it is it is rather wonderful. It's full of photographs, isn't it? Isn't lots of photographs so and lots of lyrics, that, the things that he'd written and forgotten about, and all sorts of bits and pieces, as well as telling the you know the real story on the breakup of the Beatles. You know, on to more uh, esoteric stuff. Um, a lot of people really enjoyed and got a lot of comfort from um, the horse, the boy, the fox, and the mole. There is a new kind of it's a similar book. It's not it's not by the same author. It's not and it's not the same thing at all. But it's inspired by Buddhist philosophy, and its aim is to give sort of hope and comfort in 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 difficult these difficult times. It's called Big Panda and Tiny Dragon. It has some really interesting stuff in it, and and is is worth reading definitely. Moving on to nature. Uh, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. This is one I picked great out. Great name. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great name. Um, it's basically subtitled is How Fungi Made Our Worlds, Changed oh, yes. Our Minds and Shapes Our Futures. And really fungi is fascinating because, because uh, fungi does all this amazing stuff within our bodies. It also does all... Without fungi, we wouldn't have uh, any plants. Mm. Uh, it, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And uh, he, he gives a full detail what's going on there. Um, Moving on to travel, 
there's a there's a wonderful Colin Thubron uh, book has come out this year. He hasn't written something for a while. It's called the Amor River, and it is this extraordinary river that that probably most of us, including me, had never heard of. That it's a is a vast, mighty river that goes through northern China and 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 Russia. A lot of it is is not no one's allowed to go on it because it's sacred or it's it's um, or it's secret. Um, and he travels along. He gets special permits and travels on it. And it is a, it is a, a, a an extraordinary journey. And he is one of the the sort of doyen of mm. travel writers. History. I kind of cover all the bases today. Absolutely wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm in awe. I've got a couple of just a couple of books to talk about in history. Um, the shortest history of England by James Halls, which is one of my favourite uh, history books, is very short, as it says on the tin, and it is. Is brilliant because he explains why Britain, why England, actually not Britain, why England is is as it is now, both politically, um, sociologically, all in all different ways um, through through geography. Basically, he explains it through geography or through geology to be more precise. Um, but it's a really interesting, interesting whistle stop tour it's through the history read. of England. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other one I would talk about is Brothers in Arms by James Holland, which is a big new hardback, and it's it's a it follows one regiment from D-Day through to VE Day, and it's got masses of maps and diagrams, and it's very detailed. Uh, and for for the real for the for the person who loves their history in massive detail, it's perfect. Um, I, also, he's also a very engaging, very engaging writer as well. The musician. What are you going to give the musician in your family? Well, Symphonies for the Soul, which is a which is a sort of classical music book but it's the idea is that if you're feeling this emotion or that emotion it says right listen to this oh listen to that uh takes you down different uh, different alleyways to try and um to try and cure your ailments it's like bbc uh, sounds in well book form. yeah that sort of thing it, it it kind of takes you it, you know gives you ideas as to what you might like to listen to when you, if you feel certain ways i don't know if you remember a few years ago there was a book called the poetry pharmacy uh which did the same oh, thing yes. which basically said you know if you're jilted in love or you're uh feeling a bit low whatever you know read this poem this will this will help you you know get through things so anyway so that that's a that's for the musician um for the uh the politician now there's a book actually which i have talked about before called the aristocracy of talent by adrian woolridge which is basically how how meritocracy made the modern world which is Politics and history together, which is which is which is another wonderful read. And a hurrah for Ed Ball's appetite! I think that would also be a great Christmas book. Yes, well, that yeah, that's a, that's mixed. We, we haven't got a category for food, food and drink, and know, politics, politics and biography. But <laughs> but yes, that would that was where it would fall if there was uh, humour. I've got you know, there's the obvious. There's the Matt cartoons, which are yeah. still unbeatable. Um, there's the Private Eye and Private Eye Annual, which is also I think unbeatable. Um, and there's the, the the unpublished letters to the Daily Telegraph, which are also hysterical, called "Wake Me Up When It's All Over." Uh, and um, in fact, I was finding out today that somebody, a local person, has, has written one of them in there, which is quite fun. Oh! But I won't uh, won't say. You look read the book and find out cookery. Now you couldn't you couldn't have a, a book run up without having something about cookery. And I'm just picking of, picking up two. There is a new Mary Berry. Is always always good for for for. <laughs> That special person who 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 loves very very cooking, who yeah. loves a lot of cooking, and one I, I I particularly like, which is called Comfort Mob. Um, oh. There's a whole there's a whole series of these mob books, and they're basically simple um, simple food uh, with a very short list of ingredients, very short list of of actions that you have to do, which is in my sort of cooking really. Um, and this is comfort food, so that that's good. 
Um, children's books, we ought to mention a couple of children's books. Swarm Rising, uh, which is a new book by Tim Peake, um, the astronaut, the local local author, and all-round jolly good bloke. Uh, this is a kind of middle-grade book, by which I mean it's, it's, you know, for reasonably confident readers, right up to 11 or something. Um, it's exciting, it's adventure, it's got a superpower heroine, and it's got everything going for it. I think it'll be, it, it, it looks like great fun. Perhaps more traditional level, we've got The Primrose Railway Children by Jacqueline Wilson. And she, what she's done is she's, she's taken the basic the story of the Railway Children, the, the uh, Nesbitt um, story, and she's updated it for the 21st century. The, the storyline is, is, is moderately similar, but it basically is very much updated and very much um, a 21st century uh, children's book. Would it also appeal to adults? Too? Definitely, I think that um, I think that Jacqueline Wilson is a is a writer who has quite a lot of of, uh, of adult readers. Interestingly, I went along to the children's uh, literary festival in Chichester, where Jacqueline Wilson was there, and there were a couple of of of, of young women. I suppose they must have been mid twenties, and they'd followed her. They still enjoying her her writing. They followed her all the way through. And every time she brings a new book out, they uh, they snap it up and they absolutely love it. And so, I think that's that's indicative of the fact that she she doesn't just appeal to to mm. that sort of middle middle grade. She keeps on going. Mm. Oh, it's fascinating. I went to a festival once where she was, and there were women of a, a very much a certain age there who had read. I think she used to write for Jackie. She certainly wrote for one of she did. Yeah, those. that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. they've loved her for many years. Yeah, no, she doesn't. She's. Uh, She's one of those people that keeps on going. Fantastic. Yeah. And I wanted to finish up with uh, um, the a book called Did I Say That Out Loud? Which <laughs> is uh, by Fee Glover and Jane Garvey, which is, oh, which is based brilliant. on their Fortunately podcast, which is, which is nearly as good as, as talking books uh, as a podcast <laughs> go. Um, they haven't got you, though, Tim. They haven't got me. Um, but it, it is one of the, my favourite podcasts mm. of all. And it's them just... It's, it, I mean, what could be better than two middle-aged highly intelligent women witty women talking mm. together i think it's it's fantastic and wonderful broadcasters wonderful broadcasters so that is my whistle stop tour through what to read this christmas fabulous thanks so much tim there's lots there i would like to have so tim my backlisted book this month is the owl service by alan garner have you ever read i have never read it <gasps> you've got to read but have you read any alan garner nope. Oh, well, he's one of my absolute heroes. Anyway, he wrote the book and the screenplay in the 1960s. And this was the first series to be broadcast in colour TV in the UK. Wasn't that extraordinary? One of my favourite books of all time is the Mag- Mabinogion, which is a Welsh collection of myths and legends. And I always love authors like Susan Cooper, who we've m- talked about before, Philip Pullman, um, and me, who sort of trawl through ancient myths and weave them into a modern narrative. Um, and this story is about three teenagers who are caught in a love triangle, Who are, but that's putting it really simply because they are t- teenagers. They're sort of at that very shifting time where they don't really know who they are yet, which works very well for that state of flux. And so the love triangle isn't just sort of banal sex. It's actually to do with kinship and also class. 
So posh English Alison and her stepbrother Roger, a very public school, are on a family holiday to a secluded Welsh valley. There they meet Gwyn, whose mother keeps their holiday home. They discover a set of plates with an owl design on them and unleash the dark force whose energy is damned in the valley. And that I use the word dams um, appropriately because there's also this sense that not only is the energy damned there, but of course politically it was explosive at that time when so many villages were given up because the English needed water and their valleys were damned to provide e.g. Liverpool with water and so on. So it's, you know, it has resonance. Um, it's a fateful love triangle that is killed over the centuries and you feel it will kill again. So the boundaries that Garner crosses always are not only place and time, but the everyday and, and the mythical. Um, and I think this is revealed. But also what people don't tend to talk about is Garner's great sense of humour. And I want to... Um, Tim, if you will help me read this, I think it would be fab uh, and better for the listeners I all do together. My best. Do your best, love. Um, I would like to, to give this as an example of where absolutely the everyday and indeed comical are threaded through with this mythic as well. So if you be Roger and Gwyn, I'll do the rest. The shop was in the front room of a cottage half a mile down the valley. The room was furnished to be lived in. There was a table of black oak carved with herons and on top an empty red plastic tomato that had once held sauce but was now an ornament. Jars of boiled sweets were on the sideboard among wedding photographs and beside a grandfather clock were two dustbins holding sugar and flour. The ceiling was so low that a hole had been dug in the floor for the clock to stand in. Mrs Richards, the shopkeeper, was talking to Mrs Lewis-Jones in Welsh. Mrs Lewis-Jones, I've been expecting it. There was never a summer like it this week. And then Gareth Pugh's black sow ran wild on the mountain and they can't bring her down. Grandad used to say the beasts always know first. They do, said Mrs Lewis-Jones. They're very excitable, like a baby on with its teeth. We can't come near our old bull and the sheep are right up on the top there. Mr Lewis Jones is out all hours mending fences as far as the Ravenstone. That's a long way, said Mrs Richards. I'll have two thin sliced, said Mrs Lewis Jones. We've no bread yet, said Mrs Richards. The postman hasn't been. To think we shall see it in our time, Mrs Richards. Is it certain? It is. Mr Hugh came to tell us last night. He was going to all the farms. He says she is coming and it's owls. The poor thing, says Mrs Richards. And she looks sideways at Roger and Gwyn. Uh, could we have, said Roger. One minute, if you please, said Mrs Richards. She cut a lump of butter from a block on the windowsill. Is it to be the three of them again, Mrs Lewis-Jones? Yes, there's the girl too. Mr Hughes says she's made it owls. We must bear it, said Mrs Richards. There's no escaping, is there? Aberystwyth isn't far enough. Oh, you said a true word there, Mrs Richards. I'll have a packet of soap flakes. Uh, excuse me, said Roger. If you've a lot of shopping, I wonder if we could possibly have some flour. We're in rather a hurry. Certainly, said Mrs Lewis-Jones. Are you the young gentleman from up the house? Yes, said Roger. There's nice, said Mrs Lewis-Jones. And you Nancy's Gwyn, are you? 
I'm Gwyn. Oh, there's nice. I was a girl with you, ma'am. You having a nice time? Uh, yes, thanks, said Roger. Good, said Mrs. Lewis Jones. It is a nice valley for the holiday. Uh, six pound of flour for the house, please, Mrs. Richards, said Gwyn. Right, old boy. Mrs. Richards dipped a scoop into one of the dustbins. She's come in then. She's come in, said Mrs. Lewis Jones. The poor lady. If it takes that long to ask for a half a pound of rancid butter and a packet of dash, I'm glad I don't speak Welsh, said Roger when they were outside. I thought we were going to be there all day. They were talking, said Gwyn. And how, said Roger. What about, anyway? The weather. Typical, said Roger. Women. Heh. I didn't see that old alley when we came out, did you? No. I hope she managed those plates without being nabbed. Queer do about the trap, wasn't it? I wonder what made her put that grisly mouse in. I'd have thought she was too squeamish, even for a laugh. No laugh. And she didn't, said Gwyn. So, um... I've got here, if that's whetted your appetite, Treacle Walker, that I mentioned before, is set even closer than the ridge. It's, um, Alan Garner lives in an old house called the Medicine House, where he lives with his wife Griselda, and they rebuilt this really, really ancient home that's now home to the Blackton Trust because he loves archaeology as well. Um, and there's an event on the Yorkshire Festival of Story, which is a film created at the Blackton Trust to celebrate the publication of Treacle Walker. It's absolutely brilliant. And it will be followed by a conversation between Alan Garner and his daughter, the author and my editor, Tim, Liz Garner, um, recorded as they sat in the central chimney of the old medicine house. So it's extraordinary that, that talk about a liminal place. There's this chimney that you can actually sit in and it's wonderful. So I'll put the link to that. Um, if anyone's interested, you can join the conversation and everything. And I'll put that on our website. What, what's a liminal place? A liminal place is otherwise known. Um, it's literally like a, from the word shore. So it's a, it's a meeting of two worlds or a liminal time okay. would be twilight or okay. just before dawn. Um, and I love the notion of thin places. Um, I think we've had several of them here, someone was telling me, but not here, not in One Tree Books, but um, in Petersfield and the ancient hangars and so on. So thank you very much, Susie. That's really interesting. Next month, we'll be re revisiting some old favourites to read over the holidays. And we're also talking to Giles Brandreth about being a golden boy born in a manger. All felt like it to him. So listen out for frankincense and myrrh. See what I did there? Myrrh, more. Never mind. And also Prince Philip, the difference between being a friend and offering friendship. And I keep thinking about what he said about what happens when you're 21. And as ever, if you want to listen to any old editions of Talking Books, you can find us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Just put Shine Radio and Talking Books into the search bar. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Susie. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. Imagine a space where moments are shared <laughs> and memories are made, where bands play their best gigs 
and comedians bring the house down. A space for inspiration and maybe perspiration. Petersfield Festival Hall is ready for a makeover and you can help decide its future. To take part in the online consultation, search Petersfield Town Council. Petersfield Festival Hall. Make it your space.